Geezers of Gear, episode number 25, and uh, Henry has managed to bring in a very important and very uh, interesting guest named Frank Bote. Correct. Do we yeah. get that right? We got that up? right. Yeah. Perfectly, perfectly. You have to get a lot closer to the mic. Uh, okay. There you and go. And you can pull it towards you, too, if you want. Uh, you can okay. pull the, you know, the whole, uh, this there you go. boom stand thing. You're a rock star now. Mm. So there you go. Okay. So Frank is, uh, we've just been told, has for the last year and a half been called the chief technology officer, the CTO of, uh, of D&B. Audio Technic. Yep. And, uh, you know, D&B, of course, being uh, the uh, probably premier or one of the premier uh, speaker manufacturers now or, or uh, you know, sound audio manufacturers. And so I'm very interested and excited to hear from Frank and to learn a little bit about a little bit more about DNB, but also a little bit about your background. Uh, you know, you just gave us the 60 second version and we were already both going, wow, 30 years at DNB. That's unbelievable. And so, um, Henry, where do you want to start? So I, I looked a little bit at your profile on Facebook. You know, if you ever wondered who the weird guy was that was asking you for, a, for your friend and you never responded, okay. that was me. That was the instant message I sent you. You know, nothing like creepy Americans kind of sending you random messages, right? So you had, um, you seemed a lot uh, to lean on your university, you know, education and things like that before you entered into uh, D&B. But I want to go back a little bit further. So, you know, almost everybody that we interview in the business now, right, the business that we're in was either a DJ or came from a band or came from a love of music. He's already laughing, so... Let's hear your story about when you were six years old and you fell in love with who? Now, what? this is certainly my, my critical point. I'm not a musician. Wow. <laughs> or a DJ? You're the one. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, hobby DJ, I, I used to be. Yeah, that's true. But in fact, the, well, I had I had no clue about making music. My parents were not musicians, so I, there was no real background to it. And uh, uh, But my friends started, of course, mm -hmm. founding bands, playing guitar and whatsoever. So what could I do? What was my contribution? Building the loudspeakers, of course. Oh, wow. wow. So that's yeah. awesome. So you were that guy. Usually either the guy whose parents had a station wagon or the guy who had the sound system. That was the most popular guy in the band, right? Exactly. Back in the or day. The, or the parents that had the money to borrow the money to pay for the PA system, yeah, right? Yeah, that was it, too. Yeah, but, but mainly it was about the, the equipment of uh, a local youth, youth club we had in our little village where I took care of. So where was that? Boxes. Southern Germany, northern? That, that's in uh, Franconia, is it called, the region, a part of Bavaria. So okay, got it. Southern Germany. A uh, little village with some, I don't know, 2,000 inhabitants or so. Uh, we all started. I got interested in building speakers for that disco type of application and, mm -hmm. of course, hi-fi speakers for my home. And, uh, well, and, and I studied physics. Okay. Which is... Uh, an important thing, Not I would too imagine. Bad, uh, <laughs> yeah, that uh, helps. Topic. So, uh, you know, in the in the seventies and the eighties, my father and I, uh, when we were, when I was in the family business, we manufactured a lot of uh, speaker cabinets. We built over fifty five thousand boxes ourselves. So this is, uh, you know, primarily the old JBL box designs, forty five sixties, the scoops, the folded horn enclosures, the early RCF designs. I'm sure you're familiar with all those. But Frank, how old are you? You're, you look like you're about 39 years old. <laughs> no, no, not quite. 54. Okay, so you're same age as us, right? Same age as Marcel and, and, and us. So Henry being the oldest. No, you're the oldest. You I'm just older had your than birthday. You? Yeah, you got me by six months. Oh, so Jesus. The, anyway. <laughs> I'm the oldest. So um, tell us a little bit about the early box design. So you, you, know, you had an interest in it. And uh, what boxes did you design? Where did you get your first plans? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, as I said, I, I studied physics, and uh, uh, at that time, uh, D&B started. I mean, I, I didn't know D&B okay. by then because I was not a musician and had nothing to do with pro audio. 
Uh, and it was just a recommendation of a uh, colleague of mine in the university who said, you should drive there to Backlang, which is, was 200 kilometers away, right. and see those guys. And I did so and, and saw those guys. And it was pretty amazing what I saw, that uh, uh, they started to design loudspeakers and, and, and also electronics then. But in the beginning, loudspeakers... Uh, th they started to do that on a scientific level, more or less. That's what I've heard about. So that was Jurgen and Rolf both, yeah, right? That were more scientists and very technical about Jürgen, things, right? Yeah, Jurgen was the electronics guy, and, mm -hmm. and Rolf was the uh, loudspeaker guy. Mm -hmm. And they had, uh, on the one side, they wanted to do that more scientifically, but on the on the other side, um, it started to be a, a growing business because the fast, first speakers they built, they were successful, people wanted more, and they were confronted with the situation of they need to build up some kind of manufacturing side. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what they were busy with at that time. So they added more people to do research and development. But you mentioned scientific you know, research, and then you know, all of a sudden you're building PA boxes. So was it, you know, both of their, the, both of the original founders, was that their intention to be a large PA company or to, to build it? Or, you know, you're talking about scientific research, so what did they really want to do? Um, what they really wanted to do is they wanted to improve the sound in their surroundings. It was certainly not about, maybe they had that vision, but it was too far away being a global company. I mean, it was in a little village in, in right. nearby Stuttgart, and it was about the local events which sounded horribly, and they wanted to fix that. Okay, so that, uh, that, that kind of makes sense. Th that's how it started, with uh, local disco clubs and so on. Uh, and then, then suddenly they had the possibility to hire people, mm -hmm. not only for the administration, but also uh, the, one of the first guys uh, who was hired there was uh, Dieter, a mathematics uh, mm -hmm. guy. And then they, because Jürgen was the, the engineer, mm -hmm. and he was really interested to base that, to found that on, on a scientific uh, Okay, so, thing. I mean, you're talking about this is what, 1983, 1984 at this uh, point? Th that was, that was uh, in the late 80s. Okay, so that far out then, I, right? I would say uh, in the early 80s, it was still more like trial and error. Mm -hmm. There were no, you know, you didn't have computers to do simulations or whatsoever. Right. But it was in the, the mid-late 80s where that whole thing got a bit more... Organized uh, and structured. Uh, organized, structured, and using computers, of course. So you came on to d and in what year? I came 1990. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, my first project was a, a, a loudspeaker, which is... Uh, Probably, well, it's a normal production, of course, was called uh, E9. Okay. In, uh, its so last was that the first of the E series boxes that you built? Yeah, at that time it was called uh, O2 series. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called 902. Um, and there were a couple of boxes 902, 602, 402. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, that, that, that whole series was renamed, rebranded into the E series. Mm -hmm. and C-series later. Actually, uh, when DMB decided to go to the U.S., and we were scared about getting issues with both, with their 402s and O2 mm -hmm. models, so that's why we decided to change wow. the product names. Yeah, but that's very typical of European companies to be afraid of uh, litigation in the yeah. United States. I don't blame you, because uh, I'm Canadian, and... and in Canada, same thing. We don't really sue a lot of people. <laughs> you know, lawsuits aren't really our biggest concern. Whereas here in the United States, where you have like seven lawyers for every uh, human. Exactly. You know? For every business owner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got them on retainer. Yeah. No so you came on board. Um, you know, obviously you'd already been building boxes now. Did you have a proprietary box that you yourself brought on board? You go, hey, it would be cool to build this if we could mass produce no, it. No, no. I really started at, at zero. Really? Uh, because, um, yeah, my boxes were more the hi-fi type of So of just speaker. square and then shove the components and, in uh, them, right? And when I came to DMB, I suddenly saw all the components in the, in the shelf, uh, which we had for playing mm -hmm. around with. 
which I never could afford before, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and uh, that was, of course, big fun yeah. uh, to build now really, yeah, b bigger speakers. And, uh, yeah, and, and uh, that really developed uh, absolutely great. So that, that, that product, that, that product series, that series O2, mm -hmm. as it was called, was really successful. Uh, in particular, it was, was, uh, it was a passive speaker system or mm -hmm. a range of passive speaker systems. Right. Um, where everybody said, yeah, passive speaker systems, this is the B league of loudspeakers. Mm -hmm. The premium ones are, of course, active ones. This is the only thing which really works. And we kind of proved, we, we, we taught the world with a, a, that a passive speaker with proper electronics to go with. Right. So with dedicated processing, which is specific for that particular speaker, that you can achieve a performance which is absolutely equal to active speakers. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. So you're talking now, what, early 90s for the E-Series boxes, yeah. that's correct, and the first things. I remember going in to see a product demo when D&B was not so well known in the United States. They were just, <coughs> excuse me, gaining popularity. And I was absolutely blown away as to, you know, most systems, you have a couple of choices that you make when you, when you listen to loudspeaker systems. You know, they play very loud, high sound pressure level, right? And they sound kind of okay. Or they have good fidelity and they play very low when you drive them in a, you know, in a, in a small space, like hi-fi speakers. Mm -hmm. And really, the, the, the first time that I heard the rig, it was a demo here in Orlando, actually, at one of the AV companies, and it was all set up. They brought in a bunch of corporate clients, but I was amazed at, number one, the sound pressure level that you could get out of it, but the absolute clarity, and the, it was almost like a hi-fi experience, but at very high sound pressure level, and that's the first time that I really had exposure to the DNB e-box system, and I was just like, wow. This is un this is something really really different, and obviously, shortly after that, as you know, as you built more and more speaker cabinets, as you brought out different series of those things, that that really kind of took off. So you know, what makes you know when you when you develop the e box, what made the design different, or where was the main area of focus? So obviously, you just mentioned components. Obviously, there were amplifiers involved because you know the box came first with the components, and then all of the amplifiers and the processing came after. How did that work? Uh, no, I mean, this is the, you need to have the system approach, the system performance in mind before you start developing the components of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you would design a box completely, or not completely, partly different uh, when you would design it for a linear amplifier, mm -hmm. uh, or if you would design it for a dedicated processed amplifier. Okay. with processing for that box. If I know that uh, the frequency response itself of the box mm -hmm. is not critical because I can fix that later in the, in the well, there was no DSP then, it was right. analog circuits, but yeah, I can, can fix it later. Then I can fully concentrate on characteristics of the loudspeaker which I cannot fix later, like dispersion characteristics. Right. So I can do, uh, of course, horn designs, but also crossover designs in a way that they do not uh, deliver the maximum flat output, but that the crossover delivers the maximum consistent dispersion characteristics of the box. Interesting. And, and this, uh, this solution, having the electronics, the mm -hmm. dedicated electronics available, allowed us to design the better boxes. Okay. And, and then, of course, the combination uh, makes the thing real powerful as uh, uh, the systems are highly efficient, although they are pa passive because mm -hmm. you don't have to use a lot of uh, resistors to reduce the level of your high drivers mm -hmm. when you rather do that in the electronics. So ex explain something to me. You said one thing you can fix later. You know, you can't fix, you can't fix the components, you can't fix the crossovers, you have the, the, the processing. So you would fix the box design at a later point? Is that what you were saying? No, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the signal chain. Okay. The signal chain, uh, w w when it's only about electronics, mainly does frequency response mm -hmm. corrections. You can also do dynamic things, which uh, get more interesting in the, in the past years now. With right. the DSP, you can do non-linear <coughs> non uh, corrections. But basically, it's about correcting the frequency response, Got it. which is okay if you do that on mm -hmm. the electronic side. 
but all what happens in the 3D side, so dispersion, mm-hmm. what a box transmit in transmits in what direction, you have not very much control uh, on the electronic side with it. Okay, today you have also more possibilities if you sure. use very uh, different, um, very many drivers with dedicated electronics DSP channels. Mm-hmm. You can do, of course, also dispersion design in the electronics. But at that time, uh, that was not available. You simply had to build good boxes, uh, distortion, dispersion. This very and, consistent and, and efficiency. Efficiency. Okay. This needed to be correct. Frequency response was the easiest part. This you could so do afterwards in the electronics. So when you were manufacturing in the '90s, you know, obviously, you know, when you're a company, a smaller company that's growing and trying to establish itself, you always look up at, hey, you know, this is a good model to go after. So was it Meyer Sound? Was it Martin Audio? What boxes did you look at over in Europe and you went, this is pretty cool, but I think we can improve on it. Where where was the inspiration on that? I know you put your own science into it, but what was the who was the people, you know, who were the companies that you went, wow, they do some really good stuff? Uh, well, that that big step, what happened in that time was that combination of electronics and mm-hmm. loudspeaker. And uh, Maya was certainly one of the the, the early uh, players, players in, that. In, in that area. And, and a couple of others, a couple of smaller companies, mm-hmm. which are no more known today. Uh, and this, this was the... Yeah, the, the the big interesting thing, the big interesting. I'm change. reading right now that you started using DSP technology in '97. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. accurate? That yeah. was our first uh, EPEG. And it was called the first DSP amplifier. And that's what you're talking about right now, basically, is. Yeah, DSP is one means to to do that, uh, but also with analog electronics. Uh, at that time, before we had the DSP, oh, I see. you could do quite a lot. Uh, in the inner signal processing. It's just uh, DSP is much more effective today, and in particular, it allows to, to change the settings just by software. And of with ele- electronics, your uh, controller, amplifier was for that particular box, and you couldn't set it for another, not to play it right. for another box. Uh, so that has, of course, changed. So in the original analog amplifiers, um, you know, obviously in the old days for us, you had, used to have plug-in socketed crossover modules. Everything was built internal into, your, into the initial analog amplifiers that you did, correct? That was built for the original E-series, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, was models yeah. we used. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the, they were staffed for, for that particular loudspeaker model, okay. that circuit, and you would buy the amplifier for that loudspeaker so model. So you build the E-series, you've got the amplifiers. What's the first big show that you remember that you went on saw? Was it the Scorpions? Uh, no, no, we were, we were not uh, playing that, that big. At that time, we, our systems were smaller. Okay. And um, oh, the, the first big show with... Uh, so I mean, where where did you make? Did you come out of the D, did DMB come out of the DJ world, or did it come out of touring, or did it came out of nightclubs? Where where did DMB start, and how did it evolve? Uh, well, let me think. It it, it uh, was of course local live music production. Okay, so it was live and uh, and clubs clubs okay. in Stuttgart, which uh, well repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, damaged their systems and blew their <laughs> drivers so this needed fixing so okay. i guess that's not just a north american problem right <laughs> yeah exactly <I> think <laughs> that happened in europe too <laughs> that's for sure so what was the first big rig you know when you saw it the first big adoption by a big production company and you went out and you saw the show because obviously you're proud of of what you do being you know in r&d at the time right and you're proud of the product so did you travel with any of those initial Yeah, rigs? I mean, the, the biggest uh, step regarding uh, large-scale systems was the uh, C4 mm-hmm. system, at that time called 402. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was the first time we had a system which was capable of doing real large-scale shows. So Wigwam, um, uh, for example, was one of the first big uh, rental companies mm-hmm. uh, who went that, with that system, and they had all... Uh, a lot of those big UK productions like uh, Spice Girls at that time, for mm-hmm. example, and also big festivals in the UK. We won't S- tell anybody that you're a Spice Girls fan. It's okay. 
Hey, well, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was entertaining. It was, right? They produce a good show in the box, for sure. Yeah. yeah. We so. actually just spoke about it in, uh, in our previous podcast. We spoke about the current uh, Spice Girls tour. There was an article. Um, you know, I guess what happened is one fan started with a tweet, and then it was thousands of fans at their first show. Where was it? I forget. I think it was over in the UK. They, you know, it was one of those stadium uh, shows. I don't think it was UK. Was it? it was somewhere, somewhere in Europe, their first show. And uh, because it was in a football stadium, the sound was terrible. And so someone said, you know, this is terrible. I want my money back. And then it started to be a very large uh, communication going on. And it was putting down the front of house sound man and the sound company. And it was unfair. And we just spoke about it because... You know, these stadiums are not designed for a concert. They're designed to keep sound in and make it very loud with fans screaming and rebounding sound. And so it, it's sort of counterproductive to a concert sound and, system. And that, that didn't really change uh, un until today. I mean, our sound systems are much more capable. And with uh, the increased dispersion control, we can do a lot. But still, many stadiums are yeah. simply no fun to, to listen music <laughs> no, to. No, no, they're uh, terrible. Even with, with the best sound systems. Mm. Uh, and it's a pity that uh, <coughs> yeah, when, when selecting the venues for a tour, uh, obviously nobody really acoustics takes care are not, about, yeah, about that, are not that important. issue. Yeah. It's about how big is it and, and, uh, and what's the how price. How many people can we fit in there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but it's terrible because I'm sure it had nothing to do with the front of house uh, sound guy or the sound designers or, or the sound company or even the manufacturer of the products. It was just the venue. You know, it's just a terrible sounding venue. But, so. but there's still a lot of, lot of improvement uh, or happened so far and, and still more is possible. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, the big improvement, the big, big innovation what happens, uh, more and more shifts to the system side. So it, it, it started with building good boxes that mm -hmm. was like 30 years ago, or 30 years ago it was mainly about good drivers. There was a big, mm -hmm. you know, you had to find the best drivers or design drivers with low distor distortion mm -hmm. and high power handling and all that stuff and horns. And then it, it uh, shifted towards the system level. Mm -hmm. So getting loudspeaker and electronics played together. And what now is happening, uh, this is the yeah, more interesting part actually, is that uh, how to make 200 loudspeakers play together as useful as, as, as performing as possible. And this is, the, this is addressing those large scale systems and, and you find out that there's a lot uh, you can you can still improve there. Were you involved in the Prince Albert Hall project with that D&B did with that big install where they hung about 400 speakers more recently? And uh, no. So there was a <coughs> Prince Albert Hall, uh, I guess, over in the UK is one of these nightmare sound scenarios. We talked about it in the last podcast, and they hung, I think, it was one of the largest single hung speaker, um, you know, installs out there. There was something like 400 and some odd D&B yeah. speakers in it. It was it was crazy, and they say now the sound. You know, uh, many, many sound engineers came in there and they said, hey, it was, you know, it was horrible. The sound sucked. And apparently now it was, you know, quite uh, a huge improvement with all of the modeling and things like that. Oh, so there you go. Microphones work better if I, you talk into yeah, them. Yeah, I'm kind of talking out of the side of my mouth here. Sorry, folks, on the Sorry. podcast here. Anyway, um, so anyway, so the C-Series box is really kind of established. Then the, the C4 system really kind of established D&B then as the... Predominant as, as a touring system. As a touring system. Uh, yeah. Well, it was not a linery. <laughs> right. But it was about uh, one of the most successful non-linery boxes, yeah. I would say. Uh, and uh, when DMB then started to go into the linery mm -hmm. products, of course, uh, we were also very successful there. And... Uh, yeah, man managed to improve the performance of lineries, I think, considerably. In particular, with the last generation, the ESL boxes we have uh, recently released. Yeah. This adds a new level of performance, I think. So early adopters over in the United States, I know, uh, let's see, you have a big partner in uh, Tennessee, and of course, Spectrum. Spectrum yeah. out of Tennessee, they're a very large D&B partner. I know there, there's many floating around the United States, right? 
you know, some AV companies here. I think LMG has uh, D&B stuff. But uh, let's talk about the early adoption. Obviously, you're still in, in R&D. Now the, you know, the rigs start to make it over to the United States. How, how was that experience? Because there is uh, such a tremendous demand for, for the D&B product right now in the United States, and it caught fire very, very rapidly. And I know I think you distribute, I think the, the U.S. office is out of Charlotte, North Carolina, I think, right? In, in Asheville. Yeah. Asheville. Yeah. Oh. Nice place, right? It's kind of like being in the Alps in the United States. Yeah, right? it's really yeah. nice. It's a beautiful yeah, yeah. office, yeah, right? So tell us a little bit about when it, when it landed in the United States, how it took off there. Uh, you had some, I'm sure you had some involvement in that, right? Yeah, well, not not too much actually at, at that time. I was busy in my R and D department. Okay. Uh, and uh, of course, enjoying when I when I heard about successful sales and successful tours, uh, and it, it was of course for for us still small, mm-hmm. small being a small company, a uh, yeah extremely thrilling thing when when suddenly big global touring productions used yeah. our gear. So. So in your research and development, in your process, you yourself, being the head of R&D, I guess, right, and the chief technology officer now, obviously, you start off with a problem that you want to solve. Um, and obviously, I, I'm sure that you have a lot of friends that are good sound engineers and are constantly going, hey, Frank, you got to build you know, this, or you got to, this is the problem that we need to solve. Can you talk a little bit about the R&D process at DNV and how you take in input from other sound... Uh, you know, for people that are behind the console that are mixing, can you explain that process a little bit and how that works? Well, the, there's there's two different angles, really, because there's build exactly what people are asking for, right? Or, like the Steve Jobs method used to be, people don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want. So you have to design it so far beyond what they're even thinking and then introduce it to them. Yeah, or somewhere in between. Or somewhere in between. I, I would compromise. say. I mean, if, if you build what people are asking for, uh, then you obviously copy another product mm-hmm. because right. they've seen it somewhere else and yeah, you build me something like that. Uh, and uh, this is, was never good enough for D&B or not. Yeah, uh, was, we, were, we were not satisfied with something like that. Mm. Uh, so it always starts with when, when somebody's asking you for a product or you are investigating the market, you need to think that step further and, and what really solves the problem of, of the user. And um, and to get that into a process, well, it's a tricky thing because it's mm-hmm. uh, you cannot perfectly design process like that. You have always some some soft uh, variables. F- yeah. variables in there. So you need to, important is that uh, your team has a, a good mixture of the different skills you need so you need to have the engineers and you also need the scientists but you need to have a minimum share of users of sound guys in your team the crazy guys the, the, the well they, they <laughs> may all be crazy this is <laughs> not not limited we're to all the sound guys we're all a little bit crazy uh, yeah. and you definitely need crazy software engineers and crazy electronic engineers and yeah. crazy acoustic engineers uh, but you also need a couple of those guys. Or if you're lucky, you, you find a crazy programmer which does sound in his spare time and, and mixes his band or whatsoever. Uh, these are f- this are really good good combinations if you find those people. So you start off with a with a box concept, and we won't be specific because if there's any industry trade secrets, I don't want you to share them here. But I'm just kind of interested in again how you get there, right? So you come up with a box concept, right? You Now you're modeling it, obviously, in software. You're looking at different component sets. You're looking at the amplifier processing. But conceptualizing that box, right, is are you taking it from feedback that the market is giving you? Like, here's the big problem we need to have. You know, we need something between a point-and-shoot system and a line array. We need the, the semi-line array or whatever that is. Where Where is that initial thought process? Yeah, you, you can, well, in the, the classical approach, divide the R&D process in stages. And right. You have that first uh, innovation stage where you find out about the, find out about the requirements and, and uh, build a system concept, and then you create a so-called Lastenheft, we call it, requirement specification, mm-hmm. and, uh, and do they, the design based on prototypes and come to a 
final specification where when the last part of the R&D process is simply executing that thing and, and industrializing it. Right. And in all, many people dream of that processes clearly defined, uh, also time-wise, how long are those stages. Um, and uh, the first part needs to be done quickly and then get the industrialization right. This is the important thing, that the quality is okay. Uh, at DMB, usually it's a bit different. Of course, the last part needs to be done thoroughly and the quality needs to be okay. But the very first part, that innovation phase, where you think about uh, what is technical possible, what, what technologies we have uh, available, what, is the, what are the issues in the current situation out in the markets. Uh, this takes a lot of time and this is not always easy to form as a process. This is a bit, basically it's a lot of arguments. Well, right. internally <laughs> in a company, the marketing I, team is going to want this, uh, you know, one product. The sales team is going to want a different product. Engineering might want something completely different, and then finance might might yeah. But can then, all of then it gets really really difficult. I mean, what what is a a good situation is if you have a a team uh, from with R and D, product management, uh, maybe sales involved, which really closely work together, and uh, they are experienced. They're experienced in developing new products, but they're also experienced in in collaborating properly. And that when the rest of the company somehow trusts them and say, okay, l let them do that, that can be very efficient and there can be really a highly innovative and high-quality output Yes, if you have the, the right team yeah. merged together. It's a collaboration. That's a collaboration thing. Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, which combines all that, yeah, road experience with, uh, of course, R&D and scientific yeah. knowledge and everything. So I have a really stupid question because I'm the least knowledgeable person on this sound system, uh, on your product. But are they passive or active today, your boxes? Uh, both. <laughs> oh, so you have both uh, in types. the In the SL series and, uh, and also in the Tray series. Uh, we have two active channels, but one of the active channels again has a passive crossover, uh, which crosses over high channel and, and mid driver, and the in the SL also the side firing drivers. Okay, ah. so it's a combination of both. So one of the one of the topics we really run into quite frequently, and it's it's come up in quite a few of our podcasts already. You know, uh, in the lighting because we come from the lighting business. You know, we're kind of at a threshold of innovation. There's not really been that next huge technological leap forward. A lot of people are asking what that is. So we ask people, you know, lighting designers and people that are touring on the road. And the, the common response uh, seems to come back. Um, you know, the next innovation or where we see innovations going is how fast you can set stuff up and how fast you can rig it. And deployment how you, time. Deployment yeah. time, right? Truck packs, uh, weight, you know, just the convenience of the product. Um, and a lot is happening in video technology. A lot has happened in lighting technology with the advent of, of LED especially, made fixtures smaller and brighter and take less power and more uh, reliable, less, less maintenance needy. And so that was a major advancement in, in lighting. Um, audio, obviously, uh, line array was, was a huge advancement, I guess. But, um, I mean, is that where you're going? Kind yeah, that's of? where I'm going. I mean, have, have the rigging systems changed, or do you look really hard at the rigging systems as to, you know, hey, it's, it's on a tour. The, this line array is going out on a tour. How long does it take to set up and link all the boxes together, the, the, the yeah, I mean, amount of time is, to this link? This is absolutely important, and, and that led to, um, I'd say, integrated solutions that the manufacturers like DMB not only produce the box, but they produce the whole transport solution with carts, uh, where can you you store four pre-rigged cabinets, uh, and your setup then is really fast mm -hmm. uh, using that that thing. And with that cards being designed by DNB, mm -hmm. uh, you know all all fits and and all is all is really prepared. 
that's a that's a big advantage. Well, I mean, I there I've seen some boxes out on the market where you're able to you know change the drivers up front. They may they may rock the high frequency sections. I've seen things where there are different variations on the angle strap. So when you hang the line array down, you know how fast you can you can adjust the angles on those and things like that. Is that uh, yeah? There has been done a lot also with uh, our latest rigging system, which we use in the SL series. We have that combination of a so-called tension mode and a compression mode. So the uh, tension. Can you explain that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> That's even beyond my technical capability. Go ahead and explain those two modes if you could. Uh, <clears throat> the the tension mode was the kind of conventional mode, uh, rigging a line array, put box under box uh, with predefined mm -hmm. angles. Right. And uh, rigging straps. Yeah. It, it was more like, you know, metal levers. Yeah. Uh, you would uh, connect using bolts. Mm -hmm. And that whole thing would then, of course, have the angles you, you have preset per cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. Which made, makes it uh, increasingly difficult to rig the system with l very large arrays mm -hmm. when you have also high curvature. Right. So because then the last box is no more vertical, but also it's almost facing straight down. It's right? facing straight down, and attaching more boxes uh, gets gets more difficult. That's when you go to theater in the round, right, where you shoot yeah. sound in both directions, not just anywhere. <laughs> and this is where where the compression mode comes in, uh, where you set the rigging, the identical rigging system, the same boxes, mm -hmm. differently, uh, and then you set the angle. The, the boxes reach when you compress the system. So when you rig, when you add the boxes, they hang straight. It's a it's a straight vertical hang. Mm -hmm. And only when you then attach uh, the hoist at the rear, uh, you compress the the rear. So of you're the cabin. actually using a chain motor to to, to do you're the using angles. either manual or, or or a chain motor, and this allows you to set up the system really straight, mm -hmm. uh, which is faster you need less space of course on, on your, your stage wherever you are because it's it only takes the footprint of, of the your, box of, itself, of the yeah. box and, and right. the car the dolly yeah of the dolly uh, and this makes makes things really faster so there were a lot of improvements made in, in, in the past so years. on the motor system or on that rigging system are you providing the technology for that because there's there's a lot of load systems out there that feed back to the you know, to computers and thing that, that says, hey, this, this system has, you know, lifted 30, 30 feet, uh, you know, up in the air, and that's it. So um, how are you measuring the angle at that point? Yeah, the, the, <clears throat> the angle measurement we provide, there's a component which is integrated mm -hmm. or can be attached to the flying frame. It's called the array side, mm -hmm. which is a, a laser inclinometer. Uh, including a temperature and humidity sensor, wow. which is directly linked to our remote system. So you see the readings of that thing on your screen of your remote control and can then trim the motors uh, to, Accordingly. Have the, to have the exact That's uh, interesting. I aiming. didn't know that. Yeah. I had no idea. So how does humidity affect sound? I mean, besides being in the fog, but I mean, you know, how does... Yeah, I mean... Humidity and temperature, of course, uh, uh, modify the characteristics of the air regarding absorption mm -hmm. of high frequencies mainly. Right. Uh, and mostly you can, you can compensate for that. You just have to know the humidity and the temperature. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, the, the drier it is, uh, the more absorption is happening in very high frequencies. So you need more energy All right. uh, to overcome large distances. Uh, but basically, you need to know uh, what humidity is, and then you can feed it into the system, into the DSP-controlled uh, signal processing, and that will compensate them for it. So you're getting feedback into your system about, again, what you said about angle and temperature and humidity. That's feeding back into your software, which is monitored. And then from there, does the system... Autocorrect. Uh, autocorrect, self-adjust. <laughs> I didn't want to say that, but yeah. does it, is there an autocorrection process, or is there another... It's uh, it, the recommended oh, are, curve we, is we, this. We, we are we are careful with auto. I mean, <laughs> auto for for uh, designing system so that you have a uh, suggested design, for example, with the display angle between boxes or so. This will work, but I wouldn't like to have any automatic correction 
during the show. Yeah. Uh, so right. I, I want to I wanna still have control. So there's no big red button that just says fix this yeah. and you just put no, it down. No, no, no. <laughs> the easy not, button. The easy not button. yet. Exactly. And uh, I think nobody would, would want that. No. No real professional So I, I, remarkably, I have another stupid question. So, you know, I played in bands uh, and toured, and we used stacked speakers on the, you know, it was... First, it was like JBL W bins and, and 4560s and that old stuff. And then it became like Martin Audio with the... Fill uh, a shave. Yeah. system. And, um, you know, now Line Array, obviously, is what most uh, touring bands are using anyways. So, like, is the next uh, step going to be something in between or something flown right out into the audience where there's, you know, pods of speakers throughout the audience. I mean, there, there are two main fields of activities there. One is, of course, new boxes, new box designs. Uh, D&B have just launched a new system here at the Infocom. Oh, so wow. One hour ago. So yeah, so <laughs> we want to hear about that the, when you're the, done. The, the, we're an hour late. Oh, boy. <laughs> the, 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 a, the A series, it's called. This is something in between the classical point source and the line array. Oh. So a very, very interesting approach. With so see, I wasn't so stupid. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I and, wasn't so stupid. And the other biggest field uh, of, of innovation and, and system evolution is uh, what we call soundscape. Uh, so using existing loudspeaker components, system components, basically, but setting up systems which allow much more creativity, allow positioning of sound sources, objects, wherever you want it. Um, and then time-aligning all of those? and Time-aligning all of those. Mm -hmm. And allowing, of course, moving of objects during the show. Moving so sets, yeah. It's object-based mixing, that's called. So you have... Uh, wow. In, in interfaces mm -hmm. to mixing consoles, which provide uh, GUIs for that, the mm -hmm. so that your what you World Informer times try to do with your pan pot, which never worked because it was either either left or right and yeah. never in between, uh, to replace that with a thing which functions, where you can place your sound objects like a joystick almost like a joystick if you want. Three dimensional. You can place them wherever wherever you want uh, on your screen let's call it like that uh, from left to right and also if you have a 360 system of course anywhere around the audience wow and yeah and making those those systems they, they are known and, and available for quite some time but uh, creating uh, a system like that which is really feasible also for for live for mobile applications not only with pre-produced material, but it's really feasible in a in a live show. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is the yeah the, the the current big thing, and and we are pretty successful. That's great. Uh, with that with that system. So one of the things we just recently spoke about was, um, you know, you being the visionary, I guess, right now of DNB in that you're heading uh, technology, you're heading the R and D team. So how far down the the line are you focused is it next year or is it five years from now or like how far ahead are you thinking personally right now um to be honest uh, we we have uh, thought about the future for all, all the time and we have we have really collected so many ideas and and things we uh we need to do we need to investigate uh that if I add more more things we need to do in ten or twenty years, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all our engineers say, "Hey, it's you'll <laughs> never catch hold, up." Hold on, we, yeah. we, we won't catch up. Yeah. But no, uh, th this is the the actual R and D things or the projects we are currently dealing with. They have uh, not not the ten or twenty years reach currently. They are it's our you know fulfilling our our roadmap, doing doing product designs for the next five years or so right however you need to have that vision beyond yeah uh what, what, what's going to be important uh and and when I, for example we look at this um uh sounds uh, <coughs> object based uh mixing uh which is is coming up 
need to, of course, uh, design your system and, and also the, all the networking aspects of it, which become increasingly important uh, to be really good for such an application. Well, you probably also have to work very closely with the console manufacturers and the other components as well. Yeah, that, that, that's generally uh, not only in, in live sound, um, also in installation, uh, one of the important things that right. the, the audio system is no more a isolated thing because it's, it's part of a whole integrated system. Yeah. It needs to interface with all your uh, media control things, with your building automation, with whatsoever, voice alarm systems. So as, as well in, in installation as, of course, in, in mobile productions, you need to yeah. in interface with a lot more components. Is, is your business, like, what percentage of your business is live sound versus uh, installation? Oh, in installation is also live often. Well, but <laughs> so touring. Touring, <laughs> Let's say touring yeah. Temporary rental versus permanently installed. Uh, we guess it's about 60-40. On the touring uh, on, side? On, on the touring side, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so you're pretty evenly I mean, uh, I mean we, are, we, are, we, are, we are not guessing, but we, we exactly know uh, where our, our clients are yeah. and, and, uh, and what they're doing, with some ex exceptions, because very many clients, of course, yeah. have uh, both applications yeah. in their portfolio. Yeah. And are you, um, you know, I, I guess when you have such a tightly controlled system where it really matters what devices are being connected to it and stuff... Um, are you really controlling over that? So in other words, if someone buys a sound system from you, do you keep track of exactly where that sound system is owned and what it's being used with and those types of things? Like I, you know, what I'm getting at is L Acoustic. You know, L Acoustic, whenever we sell a used system, they're always chasing it around to find out, to make sure that they know where every one of their sound systems is, in a sense, so. Uh. I guess we don't have yeah that, I mean that, it that it's control of it it's yeah no I mean you know so there is their boxes are serialized so there is there is such a thing as I guess uh, the integrity of boxes I know that yeah. there was a rig that went out on auction I think it was a D&B rig a couple of years ago the rig came down it cracked some of the boxes and then uh, an insurance company wound up with it right oh wow yeah and then D&B didn't want to have anything to do with it they go we're not going to recertify this box wow warranty it or anything else so yeah. has there ever you know we obviously you know gear source uh, sells a lot of pre-owned uh, D&B product right so we take the older series boxes and you know J rigs and things like that and now, the huge demand for them. Have, has, have you ever thought of a recertification process or looking at those things? You know, obviously components wear out over time. Have you ever looked yeah, at a, yeah, a recertifying are, a rig? We are looking at that currently, yeah. I think that that is a, you know, a lot of huge, huge, huge upside on that type of thing. Yeah, sound companies will pay a lot of extra money, yeah. uh, you know, to buy a used rig if it's certified by the factory as being good, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you know, if there's a huge market for used Mercedes and certified pre-owned Audi and things like that for the yeah. people that can't afford to roll out of the showroom new, yeah. right? I think yeah. that that would just be a massive expansion for yeah, sure. Yeah, we are we are well aware of, the, of that, and we yeah. are we are working on that. Cool. That's very very cool. So one last question, um, you know, I see you also do column speakers, right? But those look like more just for hangs for churches and things like that. Is there any interest in the R&D world? You know, you're familiar with the KRA uh, rigs and some of the RCF rigs where you have the subwoofer, the pole, and then the column mm -hmm. speaker sitting on it. Have you guys dreamt up one of those that's just the next evolution of that? That's quite popular in terms of speed of setup, which we were talking about, right? Uh, well, this is not the typical DMB application. Correct. That, that yeah. more mus <laughs> right. musician type of products. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have no no plans there currently, but we do have a column speaker, which is hardly known. This is... <laughs> well, this I just looked at it, you know, well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the, the form factor of your column speakers, yeah. I, I'm thinking, you know, okay, there are all these Gothic churches over in Europe, mm -hmm. and obviously you do white boxes and things like that, so you want to have as good a sound quality as you can possibly have in these super giant churches right so i would imagine that's what that product was developed for more for that market yeah for, for that but it, it could be used in any multi-purpose hall whatsoever conference situation 
left and right of a screen or whatsoever. And, and yeah. that, 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 that product has a, a absolutely amazing performance. It's a, a Cardioid column speaker, mm -hmm. which is, uh, well, nobody else has, I, I would say. This is really a kind of unique thing. And sometimes people ask, uh, why do I need a Cardioid speaker when I put it against the wall? Uh, no, you do need a cardio speaker when you put it against the wall because mm -hmm. you don't have the refraction, uh, reflections of the wall uh, right. if, if the speaker is cardioid and you always have a, a overlay of your direct sound and your mirror source mm -hmm. behind the wall uh, and this deteriorates sound of, of, of wall-mounted column speakers dramatically and the, the DMB product is absolutely mm -hmm. different there. And its performance is uh, so amazing. So you demoing uh, that over in your booth too, or no? Uh, no, no, it's not not on. Uh, or actually, I don't know. It's probably on the booth. I don't know. Okay. I haven't haven't looked. Well, very cool. Let's I love uh, I love on the homepage of of the DMB website the the final uh, well one of the final paragraphs is first is the belief that everyone should experience the same impeccable quality of sound regardless of their position in the audience. And you know that to me says it all. Like that's that's uh, great mission statement, right? It, yeah, it, the, it really was is. Formerly also called democracy for listeners. Ah, <laughs> another great one. That's a good one. I'm gonna have to remember that democracy, democracy for, for listeners. Democracy for listeners. Very, very cool. Do you have any idea what your booth number is? Uh, six thousand seven hundred something. Okay, so if you go to booth number six thousand seven hundred and something, you will find D and B. And you can look for Frank and ask him really uh, geeky questions. You know, I just can't think of smart enough questions because I'm not uh, not so up on the audio technology as I should be. But uh, thank you so much, Frank, for taking the time. I know it's a busy show and it's the first day and people are probably trying to ring your phone like crazy right now. You know, where's the keys for the meeting room? Uh, <laughs> but uh, we appreciate you coming over and educating us a little bit on, on the product and the history and where it's all going and you're officially a geezer now you get the blue t-shirt okay which is a good thing <laughs> thanks so much. great thanks thanks a bunch Oh, baby.